Hey, Verbivores. Welcome to a new episode of the Verba Coffee Chat Podcast. Today, your favorite data nerds, Jared Perlman and Ryan Peterson, sit down to reflect on the most recent oven fresh data from the fall 2021 term. Listen in as they discuss comparative trends in student purchase behavior, as well as market share developments between new, used, rental, and digital. Discover how day one access models are performing in transforming course materials delivery. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Jared. You say it so inquisitively. (laughs) All right. I think inquiry might be a theme of this podcast. (laughs) Excellent. Today's podcast is our semi-annual coffee discussion of our most recent data-driven strategies. This presentation covered our quote-unquote oven fresh data from August 1st to October 1st. So generally think of that as comprising most of the fall rush. Cut this down from 86 slides from the original presentation down to 32 for discussion today. Just the hits, everyone. Just the hits. Everyone may be aware that there's been a global pandemic and it impacted your industry, including consumer behavior. So 2020 saw the first time that we had seen online shopping in Burbank Compare not decline since off the charts, actually. I don't know, 2013, 2014? Uh, Yeah, five, six years. Yeah, we were over the moon. COVID has changed some things perhaps forever, and some things will go back to normal, not the new normal. And it probably declined in 2021 by the same amount that it would have on the same trend line. We studied history, but I think that's a regression to the mean. Very good, very good. But yeah, no, seriously, you look at, you guys can't look at this chart that we're looking at right now, but if you look at the chart and you were to connect 2019 to 2021, you'd say, hey, 2021 is basically exactly where I'd expect it to based on the past behavior. But we have this weird anomaly in 2020 where we spike up. Now, what's really on the other side of it, something that we always say mitigates our existential fear and terror when we see what's happening with the verb compare trend line is that the inclusive access line just keeps shooting up. And Again, you can't see the line that we're seeing right here, but let me assure you, it is pretty straight as straight can be when you look at the inclusive access line. While there's this really anomalous event with the Verba Compare peak in 2020, if you were to just look at this IAEA line, basically it looks like nothing ever happened. It is a perfectly straight line from 2017 all the way to 2021 from a growth perspective. And 2020 Uh, was the first year that it exceeded Verba Compare, even with the Verba Compare bump from the pandemic. And 2021, that gap is looking, starting to look pretty wide. Yeah, it's basically the the data set at this point is two thirds IA from a dollar perspective and one third retail. Just a crazy inversion from where we were just a, a couple of years ago. So let's roll through and start talking a little bit about what we actually saw within this retail data set. So we're looking at variant share of units over time. So splitting it up by new, used, rental, digital, or rental and digital, lumping all the durations together and looking at how this has changed. I think some of the big highlights are digital's fast rise, particularly in 2020, as you might expect from students just being online more, now standing at 17%. And rental declining almost, maybe almost by the same amount, a little bit less than the same amount, down to 11%. It's lowest variant market share since 2014. And while it declined in 2020 to almost this amount, it it did not increase from 2020 to 2021. It's probably doubling down on the, I think many campuses actually shut down their rental programs. So that's going to change our inventory amounts and the physicality of having to pick it up and drop it off again. 
Yeah, and I think this kind of introduces our, our meta theme, right, of what kind of was a temporary blip, like that COVID online shopping bump that we saw in 2020 versus what was a permanent change in the market. And it, at least for now, it feels like that rental hitting sort of a, a new low, that looks like it stuck. When we look at this chart, we also see that the use portion of the chart hit a low last year and it crept up a tiny bit in 2021, but it didn't recover. I want to say that's something like a half percent gain or something over last year. So you have the two sort of more affordability oriented variants on the physical side hitting a new low. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got digital, which had a huge bump from 2019 to 2020, easily the largest kind of absolute share gain that we've ever seen for digital. It would be a fair bet for a betting person to say, oh, digital is either going to decline back down as students get back on campus and have more access to physical content, et cetera, or to go flat. But digital, again, gained a couple of points over last year or so. And so similar to that verb compare story, if you were to draw a trend line from 2019 to 2021, digital lands basically where you would expect with a very sizable bump coming in 2020 in the middle. Uh, and I think one thing that our regular li- listeners will know is that what we're talking about here is just the verba compare shopping results. So that rise in digital is not driven by inclusive access. This is what happens outside of IA or when a student opts out and they're purchasing in the price comparison interface by variant type. Yeah, that's a really good point. And with IA now comprising two thirds of this overall data set, it's a shrinking part of the market where we're talking about a true retail set. And even within that, we're seeing what I I think you'd call a halo effect from some of the IA stuff. Students are getting more and more comfortable with digital and it's largely coming at the expense of used and rental. One thing that we always like to look at, if you have known us for a little bit, is pricing. Let's talk a little bit about pricing within these uh, within these retail variants, right? Taking a look at the average price by unit checked out in Verbal Compare over time, we've seen that new has declined since 2016, but basically stabilized in 2019 to 2021. No surprise, it's the most expensive. This past term, the average new price of a book was $72 that was checked out. We've seen a lot of competition among the other three variants. And I think that kind of reflects how they have been competing for affordable market share. If you don't want the brand new book, what is your best alternative? We've seen the average price of digital start out higher than used. I think this might have been driven in part by a smaller data set, but so it could be anomalous, but it's come down to $48 on average. Used has only slightly declined during that period. Although I'll note that we did see an increase in this price in 2020, and then it's come down basically the same price it was in 2019 at $41. And the rental price has been creeping up since 2019 to $39, obviously influenced by the the pandemic as well. Yeah, this rental price basically gaining as much in 2021 as it did in 2020. I think that we're just continuing to see supply constraint there. And for the first time ever looking at this chart, rental and used were almost identical from a pricing perspective. And so you can rent a book from a retailer at this point and have to send it back with all of the incumbent inconvenience, or you can buy a used book for basically the same price and be able to keep it or sell it back at at buyback. And so I think it's really just showing weakness in the overall rental variant. And then on digital, we got to say that the digital price did increase over last year. Part of that is what makes up the digital category. 
digital is not just an e-text in the same way that used in rental is just a physical book. In a lot of cases, digital is buying a much more expensive courseware product. And so as the systems that we're looking at get better at matching and vending these courseware products, as publishers are more interested in selling more high quality, higher cost courseware in the mix, I think it's fair to assume that digital price is going to continue to creep up as the mix changes. Yeah. If you were to ask for the post-2018 digital strategy for many of the largest publishers, they'd be like, oh, we're going to sell fewer new books and we're going to sell more courseware. And it might even make sense for us to break this up into courseware and e-text pricing, although we don't do that for rental durations, or but two very different things. But note to future selves. It'll yeah. Be... <laughs> All right. Should we talk a little bit? This is a little bit more, uh, let's call this a pivot between variants and retailers. So if you remember back to our presentation from winter spring 2021, uh, we saw some actually pretty big shifts. Like we don't see drastic things ha usually happening and compare for which retailers winning, which variant. And as bad as things were at that time, from the perspective of the college store, you beat Amazon an additional 4.9% on new, and it lost 3.6% of market share. The store won 3.6% of market share on used, and Amazon lost 3%. On rental, the store won 1.9% and Amazon lost 4.6%. So wins in every category for the store versus Amazon in Verba Compare. Yeah, and I think that we were, our thought at the time was Amazon shifting focus, Amazon worrying about different parts of the supply chain, and maybe just overall the supply chain, particularly online and shipping things around, being more constrained and stores being more focused on fulfilling some of this physical inventory. And then we fast forward to fall 2021, where obviously you got students back on campus, the state of the world is moderately better, at least domestically. And we start to see some changes in the other direction. So on new, very slight percentage, 0.2% to the store increased loss of 0.2% to Amazon. Use slightly higher variation with Amazon gaining 1% in market share and the store losing 2.4%. On rental, we saw Amazon gain 0.9%. But the real big winner there was Chegg, which gained 2.3%. And putting them together, we don't even get to the amount that the store lost in their uh, rental market share, which is 4.8%. This might reflect some inventory changes happening for the store. I think a renewed focus from Amazon and even Chegg, and I think in their quarterly earnings call, talked about focusing more on their books. I guess also very interesting here, it suggests some of these stores, one of the things that stuck was really just getting rid of rental as a primary concern and whether the overall student demand has shifted considerably away from rental, that at least the supply side, both in the, the broader market and campus bookstores specifically being interested in providing rental has seemed to initiate that decline. These trends in variant performance depict how campus stores and students pivoted during the pandemic. Keep listening as Jared and Ryan break down how digital is performing in the retail space and discover the data points revealing maturation in the inclusive access model. So let's move on from the physical variants and into a little bit about how digital is performing in the retail context. It's actually 2021 fall looked even better than uh, 2020 winter spring. There we saw the store's digital win rate decline from 42% to 31%. Uh, and this fall, uh, year over year, we saw it increase from 31% to 37%. So moving back in the right direction and beating last year's, but not yet getting to the winter-spring 2020 win rate. All right. So we've always expected that digital would 
in the end, start to behave like rental did. And what we mean by that is rental was originally a variant that came on the scene to serve the purpose of being the most affordable variant. It started outside of the point of sale system. We can all remember the rental kiosks from 2010, 2011, 2012. By 2012, though, the point of sale had started bringing in rental and really doing that effectively. And by 2014, 93% of all units that were rental units through Verba Compare were being sold through the campus store, through its retail management system. And that really stuck from 2014 to 2021. The store has consistently sold in the 80s and 90s percent of all rental that's gone through Verba Compare. When you look at digital, you start to see a similar pattern. In 2012, 19% of digital units are being sold through the campus store's retail management system. That pops up to 44% in 2014. So you start to see this similar trend and you might expect it to keep going. But really, it's flatlined since then. And consistently, every single year, the campus store has sold 38 to 41% of all digital units that get sold through Verba Compare. And so these things look really different. And we've often just observed why. It's fundamentally a different type of systems going from these systems that are used to new print, used print, Going to print rental is not so much of a change, although there were friends at the POS providers would tell you there was plenty to get used to from a rental perspective, from a financial point of view, et cetera. But when you get to digital, that whole concept of digital matching is really hard. And that's the thing that we keep seeing. When you actually go and expand the point of view to include not just things that are going through the store's retail management system, but also what's going through their branded digital stores from their third-party providers, the numbers jump up to what you expect them to look like. 85% last year of all digital units went through, went through those two properties, 83% this year. It looks a lot more like the other variants. And to us, fundamentally, that looks like a shift of at least a temporary shift in responsibility for who is dealing with that matching. The branded stores seem to just be doing a better job matching inventory versus the, the in-store systems and explains why they're taking the lion's share of the digital sales at this point. And to be somewhat fair, the branded stores are run by the digital companies. So we have the most. It makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish it were better on the other side too. I think it feels like an inefficiency. We, the, a place where the entire market would benefit from, I don't want to call it collaboration because I think that there's plenty of collaboration between those parties, but whatever is falling through the cracks here feels like something that could be remedied and, and make it so we're, everything is getting consolidated back in the campus store rather than having these two properties that students have to deal with. Yeah, every retailer knows if you can do this, especially if you're a specialty real retailer with a sort of captive demographic audience, keep them on your e-commerce site. Now, these are really partners, so it's not like they're trying to take your sales, but I generally, you want the whole shopping experience to be in your, at least the checkout and all the accounting and everything to go through your system. It's a better experience for everybody that way. Speaking of better experiences, right? Yeah. How about meeting the customer where they are? I feel like that's been the heading of many a chapter in a business book that I haven't read. Yeah. Right. Um, at least one of our slides at ICBA. Yeah. So this is, it's about LMS based shopping patterns. So this is looking at the behavior of student purchasing within the learning management system. And I'll just 
cut to the chase that the trend line for all the physical is that in the LMS only experience, students are much less likely to purchase those variants. And in the digital variant, students are much more likely to purchase those materials. So 17% to 41% purchasing from the store. And this kind of makes sense if you're the type of student who's logging into the LMS and maybe you're a little more digitally oriented, you'd want to purchase from there. It's also, this is the only one of these products that's actually integrated into the LMS typically. So after you purchase it, you'll have the immediate gratification of using it right there in that actual interface. You know, as much as we focus on price and we are right to do so, convenience is still a tremendous kind of input for a lot of students. And, and this reflects that. Shall we move from what has become the minor leagues of our data set on the retail side to the part that's become the lion's share of it, IA performance? Absolutely. Uh, and I wonder how high this percentage is now becoming of not just obviously our data set is all of our IA business, but how much it's becoming of all purchasing behavior now. My hunch is somewhere 25%. I threw that number out. For us, it's <laughs> 66% of our data. Yeah, it's fascinating. Honestly, when we look at the distribution across our customer base, it's wild how much differentiation we have between the low end where you've got a lot of schools who are still just dabbling in IA. And then you've got this healthy middle that's figured it out and they're ascending. And then you've got schools at this point that have been doing this for four or five, six years. And they'll tell you that the IA business is now the dramatically large share of all course materials that they're doing on campus. It's hard to know just with different campuses being in very different places, but Certainly maturation is going to be a theme here. When we think of the IA model, the two pillars are really affordability and access. So access means getting this content on day one, evening the playing field for students. They can start studying immediately, but the affordability component remains really important. And at the highest level, one of the things that we really focus on is how much are these units costing students? What is the student price over time? And every time that we've come into this presentation, we've been pretty heartened by continuing declines in the average price, even as we see significant inflation in other parts of the market and the economy writ large. And this year was not an exception. We continued to see, albeit a small decline, but a decline in both courseware and e-text prices. You go back to fall 2017 and the average courseware price was 82 bucks a unit. This fall, it was down to 73. You go back to fall 2017, the average e-text unit was $70. This year it was 41. Both of these variants are, are declining and that's really, you wonder at some point how low they can go. There's been a, a pretty nice decline in both of them over the last few years, but here we are and it's good news for the healthy model. Another thing that's moving down, probably in part because of pricing, has been the opt-out rate. And so we saw a peak of the opt-out rate so far in our data set for falls in fall 2020 at 6.5%. Uh, now it inched down to, uh, by 0.2% uh, to 6.3%, effectively a 94% participation rate. And I think this is even more remarkable because obviously the volume that's going through the inclusive access programs has been increasing. And because many programs start with the most expensive materials that are in introductory courses that have already have high sell-through, it's impressive that as you expand to other smaller courses that we'd see the opt-out rate trend down at all. I think it probably speaks to the resiliency of the model and the importance of being particular about each unit being provided to students being a lower price than the competitive market rate. Yeah. Historically, one of the things that we've liked to look at is just within that opt-out number, let's disentangle it. 
what's going on with courseware versus what's going on with eText. And the courseware story has been boring. It's been basically flat since the dawn of time. 3% up to 4%, 3%, 3%, 3% from fall 2017 to fall 2021. Something um, you might expect from the item that you must buy in order to submit your homework and quiz results for your grade in the class. <laughs> That's right. Whereas the e-text is, let's call it a more dynamic market. The, this thing is easier to replace with a print book or a used book. It's an e-text. And as a result of that, fall 20. 2017, very small data set way back then, but we had a 5% opt-out rate in eText. It was already evident that eText had a higher opt-out rate. Fast forward to fall 2018, and that number popped up to 13%. And that's about where we've been with eText as the model has been growing over the last few years. 13% in 2018, 14% in 2019, 13% again in fall 20. And the real crazy thing is this year we introduced a lot more e-text, but even with a lot more e-text, we're down to an 11% opt-out rate on e-text. And so really the overall decline in opt-outs is being driven by the e-text side of things, which is interesting with all the implications around competition for e-text specifically. And I think it's partly driven by pricing declines, but also obviously driven by generational familiarity with digital reading uh, and consuming the content in this way. Just in 2018, that was probably not as common for students to do. And then obviously there are effects of the pandemic that are making students a little more oriented towards just getting their materials digitally. Again, when we think about the sort of pandemic stickiness, more familiarity with digital seems to be a theme. Just looking at the overall share of eText versus courseware and bundle, this model really did start out as massively courseware-centric model. 2017, 71% of our units were, were courseware bundle versus 29% for eText. That held steady through 2019, 72% in 2018, 72% again in 2019. You get the pandemic fall and we're down to 64% of units are courseware. Again, we think that those supply chain constraints that happened around the pandemic caused more and more titles to flow into these programs. You would be uh, forgiven if you had assumed that the e-text share would stick at that 36% mark, but again popped up to 41% this fall. So with courseware coming down to 51% for the first time, you really see this convergence just in terms of units of courseware bundle and e-text with e-text continuing to grow, even as some of the supply recovers on the physical side. I suspect we'll continue to see this to grow. If you look at all the course materials that are assigned and across all the college universities, courseware is a main focus. It's a driver of revenues for publishers, but there are just more books assigned. That, that feels right. I, I think as part of this kind of increase in e-text, there are a lot more publishers that publish e-texts. Um, <laughs> And as a result of that, we're seeing significantly more diversification in publishers who are participating in these programs. You go back to 2017, we had a total of 28 publishers, but a massive number of units there were coming from the big three pubs. We're up to almost 300 pubs in fall 2021, just shy of it, 298. And so that's, when we talk about maturation, that's a pretty amazing measure of maturation in the market. We're, we're basically 10 times as many publishers participating in these programs in 2021 than 2017. So 
almost 300 publishers this go round. I think the, the most interesting thing is really looking at pub share when we consider the overall kind of diversity of the model. And the big three pubs, Pearson, McGraw, and Cengage, while they have, I think, each continued to grow very nicely as a share of overall units within the market, they've actually been declining. So from 2018, the big three had 76% of all the IA licenses going through our systems. You fast forward to 2020, the pandemic fall, and that number's down to 65%. And it continued to decline this year with the big three pubs being 62% of the total. And so what that says to us, it's becoming a larger share of pubs participating and those pubs are not just doing ones and twos units. They're starting to become a much more robust share of the market. And yeah. we don't often vocalize something about IA from the publisher's perspective. I think in part, it's because so much ink has been spilled about the big three publishers and pricing strategies and concerns about them. And at times I have very much shared those concerns. But I think one of the things that IA is showing is some great benefits for smaller publishers. And it's even the most, maybe not the most, but even if you are dead set against textbooks, you probably are still okay with, I don't know, the Norton Critical Edition, or you're okay with some of the Dover classics. Those publishers are getting a few more sales. And the deal with IA honestly is better deal for students can be a better deal for publishers. And they come down on their unit price for students and they're going to get more participation. And then when we talk about the health of the model, I think that we mean that more pubs participating in the model means that there's more competition within it as well. And ultimately that's beneficial to the big pubs and the small pubs as the model kind of has more longevity that way. One more thing when we talk about maturation of the model that we've been monitoring fairly closely is just what size courses are we talking about? And there's this very standard perception that the way that, that these IA models start is they start in large intro courses where materials are required, the books are really expensive, and there's a courseware component to them. And Honestly, from personal experience, that's right. We do often see that's where they kick up. But as you move through the model, the courses actually become smaller and smaller. The saturation curve runs through the long tail of courses that tend to be on the smaller side. And so one of the things that we looked at this go round was just what are the share of courses with over 200 students that comprise the model? And back in 2018, it was almost 70% of the units that ran through our program were in these courses. Again, fast forward to 2020, and you've got 56% of units. And then another small decline from 2020 to 21. This is just another place where we're seeing that the pandemic may have accelerated things to more diversity down through the long tail of courses, more signs that the maturation stuck and continued. And it, you know, obviously connects directly to the previous numbers around the market share declining for the big three. Obviously they focus on some very large courses, not that they don't have things for smaller courses and smaller courses are gonna use more bespoke titles. And I think that this continues to suggest a healthier publishing ecosystem and a um, more diverse, uh, inclusive access system. Maturity in the inclusive access model continues to fuel the surge in program growth. Let's get the insight on how equitable access is in the early stages of transforming course materials delivery at UC Davis and Appalachian State.
I think, from the present and into the future, my friend. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about EA. We have some great results to share with you around equitable access on a couple of campuses. We'll start with UC Davis, where they did some great surveys. They looked before they launched the Equitable Access Program at the number of students who said they had all their required course materials and after. And before EA, there were 6,819. And after EA, there were 22,661. So like more than tripling the number of students who have all their required course materials, which I, I just can't, uh, that is a great, thing. That is great news. Is there a more important metric than this one? One of the things that I think has helped drive the number of students getting all their course materials and participating is that the campus library has become a big part at UC Davis in the equitable access program. Basically, they set a rule that if the library had enough digital licenses to cover the enrollment in a class so that the night before the final, every student in the class could actually open up the book, then they're like, please, we want you to be part of it. And so in the beginning, when they first ran the test, they, they found 40 matches, which is great. But in spring 21, we got a 10x multiple uh, to 400 titles that were available. Yeah, I mean, it's like you look at this and I don't want to say that Campus Store and the library are rivals on campus. That's probably overstating it. But depending on which campus you're looking at, there may not be the warmest relationship between those two parties. And this is just such a beautiful example of them collaborating to save both themselves and uh, and students money. Yeah, I think they might say that they were rivals generally. <laughs> and it's nice for them to collaborate. Hey, library, you can help with the course materials costs and the bookstore can aid with the library participating in these programs and all at reduced cost, both to the store and to the students. It's, it's two sides of the world colliding in a very nice productive way. So one of the things that we noticed at Davis from the fall to spring transition that I think was, especially in fall, it was stunning to me. And in spring 21, it was even more stunning, which was that the convenience factor when students were surveyed who were participating in the equitable access, what was your primary reason? and they were given the option. The number one factor was that this is just easier and more convenient. 60% of participants said that. And in the spring that went up to 73%. And as people who have spent uh, all of their adult lives working on course material affordability, it helps them even if they don't know it is how I feel. I'm glad they like the convenience. That's a nice part about it, but the price is lower. <laughs> The amazing thing is that second term jump, just like the appreciation for the convenience gets even stronger as time goes on and price becomes even less and less of an issue. Tremendous amount of care from the Davis team in collecting this data and also help from the institution, institutional research as well. And I think a big result of that collaboration was something that I think maybe some equitable access skeptics, if there really are any out there, might not have thought was that from fall 20 to spring 21, they set their price annually for each term. Davis was at $199 per term. And after running the program for that uh, year, they had built up a reserve fund to self-insure. The students participated in a different way than they expected. They were willing to, to take a little bit more risk on it. And they brought down the price to $169. And that's 20% decline as basically a model that we've had on uh, price comparison, inclusive access, and now equitable access. When you bring down the price, more students will buy it. We're obviously geniuses. And so from fall 20 to spring 21, 
The program had a, around a 53% on average participation rate, reflecting a lot of difficulty happening for students across the country during that time. And in fall 21, that participation rate uh, increased to 70%. Price is definitely an input here. Also, just more familiarity with the program. It's hard to disentangle the two, but I think it's a good sign for the model that prices here can continue to come down and participation can continue to come up. One of the things that's complicated about setting up equitable access price is that looking at the mix of adoptions on campus, the prices available from publishers, and what courses students are enrolling in can vary a lot in the average price per student per term on campuses. And that can vary year over year and campus to campus. We saw variability in pricing that went from as high as $300 per term down to as low as $100 per term. And it's not as straightforward as just, oh, a community college will have lower costs. Sometimes they really serve STEM and introductory courses. Liberal arts colleges, more humanities might end up being lower, but there's just a high level of variability. And I think it suggests that it really is important to spend some time crunching the numbers year over year to get an estimate for what the price should be per student. Another thing that we really appreciated from the Davis team is just their constant thought about students. And what they were able to do this go round was as the even as the EA price came down, they were still able to establish an additional scholarship fund for a thousand lower income students. It just shows the value of having flexibility and control around the pricing and the dynamics in their program. And that there are a number of different outlets for making these programs work in student interests, even as they're highly variable in all the different inputs that go into them. Fall of this year, we brought on another equitable access program with very different roots. Appalachian State has the oldest rental program in the nation. That's a print rental program. They started it in 1938. Previously, they just covered one book plus one courseware title per course. And the fee was $189 per semester. But the important thing is that students were used to the concept of course materials being included as part of their program. This go-round, they made a fairly radical switch in content type on top of that foundation of the rental program that had been going for so long. And they covered all course materials rather than just that one book and one course per course. Around 85% of units were digital, 15% were physical. It's a very interesting real-world example and experiment around student behavior given different historical contexts. Yeah, so their rental fee had been $189 per term, and it had been set to uh, $250 to cover these expanded materials. A lot of courses had more than just one book assigned to them, and now it was being covered for everyone. 99.5% of students stayed in the program. It's a typo, right? Yeah, no, it's true. 72 individuals opted out. I, I do want to find them and ask them why, but I'll just be comforted by the fact that the vast majority stayed in the program. And I think here we can't really answer the question of whether or not this is familiarity, which they obviously had, or motivated by price. We can see what changes in the following year. But I think this comes to the real reason why Jared passed this off to me. The Nobel Prize in Economics was awarded. <laughs> analogy, which I will even, while saying this, which I know is pedantic, articulate a equitable access prediction. So the Nobel Prize went to a, what's called differences and differences or natural experiments. And the biggest one of these, the most notable came from 1994, where New Jersey raised their minimum wage, but Philadelphia and Pennsylvania didn't. And looked at the counties right next to each other at fast food chains to see the resultant impact on employment rates. And what this allowed them to do is have a natural experiment 
where you didn't need to do some regression to isolate like all the other variables happening in the economy. You look at two things that are relatively similar. And even if you can't think of the changes that are happening, you can probably guess that they're happening to both. And so what they were able to use that to show is that raising the minimum wage really didn't affect the employment rate. And that difference in differences, the Pennsylvania employment rate minus the Rhode Island employment rate was what they actually thought was the actual unemployment rate as a result of the minimum wage increase. There is a differences of differences principle here, which is that UC Davis launched their program at maybe the worst time that anyone could launch it. We didn't mention this, but in our uh, fall presentation last year, they saw a drop in title adoption, 25%. Like literally there are 25% fewer titles adopted by faculty members than we thought would be adopted when we modeled it after over two academic years. We set the price before we know what the adoptions are. That makes it really difficult. Plus all the students are at home and there's a global pandemic that has hurt people's incomes. This is the worst time to launch it, but I'm really glad they didn't pull the plug. And so meanwhile, Appalachian State, I'm not gonna say everything's great, but things were so much better this fall. And their students had all been in a rental program the campus had been in it since 1938. I don't think you could have had a better example of what the opt-out rate would be in a better campus. And so the differences and differences principle here is that we'll never see an opt-out rate that is lower than 0.5%. I hope I eat my words on that. And probably we'll never see an opt-out rate that's higher than 48%. And that difference of difference is a 47.5% swing based on how bad things are year over year. If people got this far, I think that they were well rewarded for their longevity and perseverance. So that's excellent. If, um, if, thanks everyone uh, for joining us for this uh, copy podcast. I hope you we didn't over caffeinate you uh, as we might tend to do. <laughs> All right. Until the spring, my friends. Thanks for listening. Our semi-annual Oven Fresh data continues to be a valuable resource for campus stores to guide course materials decisions. Make sure you subscribe to the Verba Coffee Chat podcast so you know when a new episode is live.